Hello, I'm Charlotte Hawkins and welcome to Last Past and Blast. Each week we'll delve into the musical lives and memories of a different guest and each guest will choose three pieces of music. Their last, the latest piece of classical music they've been listening to, their past, a significant piece of classical music from their life and a blast, their wild card. So keep an ear out for guilty pleasures with that one. Together we'll explore the way music has helped shape their lives and what it means to them. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with composer, conductor and speaker Eric Whittaker. We talked about the piece of music that utterly changed the course of his life, how he doesn't just sing in the shower, but sings with the shower, and how he was tempted to stage dive at the Royal Albert Hall. Hope you enjoy it. Here's the episode. Eric, it is absolutely great to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining my podcast all the way from LA. I'm thrilled to have you today. Thanks, Charlotte. I'm honored to be with you. Oh, well, I absolutely love your music. So I can't wait to speak to you in more depth about just the process you go through, where it all started from. But I think just to start off, I wanted to talk about the fact that we've been through a strange time, haven't we? We've had a, a strange few months. Indeed. And it's interesting to see that creatively, a lot more people are turning to music online, to virtual music. But you got there first, didn't you? Because you've been doing it for over 10 years yeah. now. So you were obviously ahead of the game. How did that all start for you? <laughs> for me, it started very simply. This was back in 2009. And this young woman, 17-year-old named Britlin Losey, uploaded a fan video to YouTube. And she was just singing the lines to one of the, a piece that I'd written for choir. And I had this idea that if I could just get 25 people like Britlin to do what she was doing and sing the same tempo and the same key, if I just started them, it would make this little virtual choir. It was very simple. I had no idea that it would, that anyone would even want to see it, to be honest. Just, I thought, would it work? And then the video went viral. It had 185 singers from 12 countries. This was back in 2010 that we released this. And then over the years, we've just done all these virtual choir projects and each one getting bigger and more and more global. Then, as you said, when the pandemic began, suddenly it became one of the only ways that we could all make music together it was this odd virtual ensemble. Yeah, it was. it's an odd thing for me to have seen it evolve the way that it has. <laughs> and now everyone else is doing it at the same time. I mean, you've obviously made it your signature, haven't you? That this is what you do. You bring people together from all around the world yeah. to create these amazing pieces of music. How different is it to getting a choir physically in the same room? Can you ever replicate that sound or is it just something completely different, <laughs> something new that you create? It's a great question. <sighs> Boy, where to start? I love the virtual ensembles and I love the virtual choir, mostly because they're these gorgeous, timeless works of art, I find, that, that bring people together. It's, it's so much about the community and people finding each other and sharing and being part of something larger than themselves. That I love. Comparing it to an actual choir or real choir, it's the antithesis of a choir. You're singing alone. You get no feedback from the people around you. Even those very simple things that happen when you're in a room together with a group of people where you take a breath in all together and you sing and you match and you blend all in real time. To me, that's not only a magical experience, it's a fundamental human experience, making music together like that. And the virtual choirs, as I say, I'm super proud of them, but it's not making music together. I struggle even now to think, is it really a choir? But I love the fact that people from all over the world who perhaps wouldn't have had the opportunity to sing in a choir like that, to get together with other people, can have their voice heard. Your latest one, Sing Gently, over 17,000 people took part yeah. in that from all around the world. And also people who, who were beginner singers, people who maybe had disabilities and things like that. You wanted to be really inclusive with this one, didn't That's you? right. And this for me is the great joy of these virtual choirs is that if first everyone can join, there's no audition process. One of the beautiful things about having 17,000 voices is that it smooths out the rough edges. So if someone goes off the rails a bit and sings some wrong notes, then it kind of, it, it really gets polished in the wash, shall we say. Then, as you mentioned as well, there are people who have never before sung in a choir at all age groups. By the way, we have singers as young as five, as old as 93, from 129 different countries. And then, as you mentioned, with singers with disabilities. So this time around, we had almost two dozen signers, not singers, but signers. So deaf or hard of hearing singers who uploaded their videos signing. There were nearly a dozen blind singers 
one of the singers made the sheet music in Braille so that it could be printed out on a Braille machine and they could join that way. And then there's a very active and vibrant cystic fibrosis community. And people who are familiar with cystic fibrosis know that it's a primarily a lung disorder and that because of its unique fingerprint, you can't sing in a room with another cystic fibrosis singer. You can't even be in a room with another cystic fibrosis singer in real life. And so it's the only way that people with cystic fibrosis can join. So for all of those things, I find the virtual choir virtuous and beautiful. I suppose what you're hearing me now is just talking in the middle of these COVID times where I'm just aching to get back into a room with 60 people all taking a breath in together and singing and not having to worry about anything but making music. I bet. And how hard has that been then for you the last few months? Because as a musician, as a performer, as a conductor, it must have meant a really big change for you. Yeah, it's a sea change, actually, because except for the composing part, which is normally just done in my room, uh, <laughs> sometimes not wearing pants, you know, like, so I, I don't go out anyways. <laughs> it's completely an introverted uh, affair anyway. Um, it is, but conducting and speaking and all of these things, it's only about people getting together and gathering. And especially, I keep going back to it, but that there's that moment when you stand on the podium as a conductor and you raise your arms and you take that breath and the entire group breathes with you. It's, I never realized that it was for me oxygen, not only in the literal sense, but in the very figurative sense that my soul needs that kind of cries out for it. And I just miss it terribly. I'm aching to make music together with people like that again in a room. And how restrictive has the lockdown been in LA for you? How's it changed your life? Pretty dramatic, I would say. All of the news reports that you see are true. There seems to be half of America that is absolutely dedicated to the lockdown and making it work and making that sacrifice, and then half that aren't at all. I don't understand why people wouldn't. In my little corner of the world, we've been very, very locked down. So travel has completely stopped. I haven't seen my parents in nearly six months. I actually have only seen a small handful of friends and that at a huge distance, usually at the beach, you know, where, where it's the, the safest. So it's, it's been pretty dramatic, as it, I'm sure it has been for people all over the world. I mean, it certainly has been here in the UK. For us, I think there's been a lot of criticism about the, how the government's handled the pandemic, the management of <laughs> it, whether lockdown could have happened sooner, whether people are wearing face masks. I don't know what you think about how it's been handled over there in the US. <laughs> well, how long do we have? Um, <laughs> We have, a, we have a strange situation here. I'm not sure if it's the same in the UK, but in that there's a federal government, right? So the president, Congress, and Senate that oversee the national government, but then each state has its own very powerful state government. And so in a way, it's almost like 50 small functioning countries that are all together, a little bit like the EU. And so in terms of leadership, it's just been all over the map. The federal government, <laughs> it's, I, I'd say it couldn't be more disastrous or more incoherent. Sometimes I, I honestly wonder if it's just intentionally evil. I don't understand what the point is. Here in my own state of California, it's actually been pretty robust. The leadership has been strong. The Western states have even formed sort of a coalition that have all agreed on a certain set of guidelines. And, and that's been very promising. And I think has somewhat helped slow the spread here in California, Seattle, Portland. We'll see. I mean, we're heading for another election over there. I don't know whether you'd give President Trump a thumbs up or a thumbs down from what you've said. I suspect I know the answer to that one. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's not hyperbole to say that this is by far and away the most important election of my lifetime. And I would argue maybe the most important election in a century, maybe more here in the United States. Um, so to me, it's not about voting for one candidate or the other. It's actually about voting for the future of democracy. And I'm a big fan of democracy. So I'll be voting for pro-democracy, which if I, when you look at sorry, I don't know if, if I need to come out and explicitly say it, but um, that's, that's not Trump. I, I, I got that impression. That's okay. I think we got that one. Um, when you look then at the situation that we're all in at the moment, I mean, we're finding it here in the UK with regards to live music performances, you know, you were saying that you can't wait to get back to it. How much change do you think there will be when that happens? Because there's a lot of fear here about those venues, 
that won't survive because of what's happened. Those performers who have lost their jobs, have been out of work, who, who you know, haven't been able to be paid over the last few months. It's a difficult time for the industry, isn't it? How resilient do you think it is? Do you think, you know, like you, everyone's going to be keen to get back to it so it can bounce back? Mm. It's a good question. And I think the fear is founded and real. I worry so much that even, let's say best case scenario, a year from now, we're mostly back to the way we were pre-COVID. I have no idea if that's even possible, but let's say a year. Even in a year, the number of organizations that would fall during that time, and I'm not just talking about smaller organizations, arts organizations, we're talking major arts organizations and the industry surrounding them, right? Sheet music publishers, concert promoters, record labels. It's a big industry. So I know I'm just one of thousands of people that are doing everything we can right now just to keep the industry afloat, just to keep it alive in material ways, but also just in, I know like in my my own little corner of the world, I am nearly every day meeting with choirs or organizations on Zoom and just talking and kind of keeping the interest alive and, and keeping a passion alive, especially for those students. The optimist in me, the Californian in me, thinks that we will survive this and that we'll come out the other side, not only strong, but stronger. I believe now, especially watching myself and the, and the people around me, that, that there will be this thirst for making music together. And I think an appreciation for what it really is now that we've had it taken away from us. And I, I'd like to think that we're about to enter a golden era of performing arts. I think that's the case. But God knows, you know, I and I'm sure you will be doing everything we can to keep it alive until then. I really hope so. I mean, I think for me here over the last few months, you know, there's been a lot of worry for everybody, hasn't there? Health worries, just anxiety about the instability that we've seen. And I've found music a real source of comfort. Yeah. I've found that just listening to music, just kind of taking yourself away from whatever's going on in the world has actually been something really special that's helped me through it. And I, I've, I hear a lot of people who are saying, and especially for classical music, that actually they may not have listened to it for a while, but they're really finding that it's helping them through things mm. at the moment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I find that I'm going back to music as a medicine in a way that I haven't in years and years. You know, the old joke about musicians are the last people to listen to music, you know, because <laughs> it's your day job. And it's not that I don't listen to music, I love music, but I can't remember until recently thinking I need this song or I need this music right now. And it actually helps. I really feel it helping. And I know when we did the virtual choir, when we did Sing Gently, there was a sense from the virtual choir community that it was actually making a physiological difference. We also have scientific data to back that up. But the, the way people would talk about it, it's not just that, oh, I feel better. Actually, they could feel it in their bones, in their body. And so I do think music is medicine. And that's, I suppose, one of the benefits of the COVID time is that it's reminded all of us of that. Well, talking about how we listen to music, let's talk to you now about the musical choices that you've made, because I'm going to be asking you for your last past and blast musical choices. So let's start off with your last. So what's the latest piece of classical music that you've really been enjoying listening to? So there's a composer here in the United States called Andrew Norman, and he's young. I think he may have just turned 40. And he wrote a piece for the Los Angeles Los, Los Angeles. Philharmonic, where I am, sorry, for the LA Phil, where I am. I've never said Los Angeles Philharmonic out loud. It's always the LA <laughs> Phil. Um, um, for, for the LA Phil here, called Sustain. And Dudamel conducted the recording of it. I don't really know even where to begin with how astonishing this piece is for orchestra. In general, Andrew Norman, I, th I think his, his first pieces were premiered when he was in his 20s and just kind of set the composer world alight. All of his composers were talking, saying, who is this person? This is unreal. Just a, such a fresh, interesting, beautifully crafted way of looking at the orchestra. But this piece, Sustain, it's got colors in it that I've just never heard. I didn't even know they were possible in an orchestra. And sort of endless colors and invention and a beautiful structure. So each time I listen to it, I'm kind of knocked out. I, did, I went and bought the score just so I could see what was going on in there. Well, when I listen to this, 
it's absolutely spine tingling, isn't it? Actually, the sounds that it creates. And I was fascinated because I was reading something that he wrote about it and he said, it was a, sort of an expression of time. And he was thinking about when it would be performed in a hundred years time <laughs> and how people a hundred years in the future might be sitting there listening to it. And he was sort of thinking, you know how crazy everybody's lives are now. Just imagine how crazy they're going to be in a hundred years and how special that piece of music might be that they'll actually sit there and focus on it for that amount of time. And I thought, what an amazing kind of creative process to be thinking that far ahead about the, you know, the effect that your music will have. Huh. That's really beautiful. I didn't know that he'd written that about that. And actually you can hear it when you say it. There is a timeless quality to it and a meditative quality. He does one of my favorite things when I'm composing a piece of music, which is I always try to begin the piece with what I call the primer. So it's the whole guidebook that the audience and the performers need to enter the world. For me, the best art does this. It's certainly what I aspire to. And even those opening chords and the motives, he's teaching a language, right? So he starts and says, there's this plus this plus this plus this. Got that? Okay, now here's the next bit. Here's this, this. And what I love about that and what I think makes it so timeless is that then in 100 years, those tools will still stay the same. You can teach an audience in 100 years that knows nothing about this music or even about this time. Here's this, now this, now this, now this. Got that? Right? It's teaching this kind of basic mathematical language that you can take forward in the future. It's amazing that he was thinking that far ahead. <laughs> well, I really want to talk to you about how you started composing music as well. But let me ask you about your past piece of music, because I think that might link into it, mightn't it? Tell us what the piece of classical music is from your past that you want to mention, the one that really means a lot to you, the one that you feel changed yeah, your life. This, this is a, a really easy choice. So this is the Requiem by Mozart. My experience was that I was 18 years old. I had never performed or sung classical music. I didn't read music. I grew up uh, with electronic music and pop music, so programming computers, and I wanted to be in Depeche Mode. <laughs> and I still want to be in Depeche Mode. And um, <laughs> Maybe one it, day, you never I'm know. I'm still holding out hope. I will carry bags for those guys. <laughs> That's uh, all they need, just call. I, I'll, I'll tell you honestly, I have this fantasy this is a genuine fantasy that I'm at a Depeche Mode concert and one of the keyboard players gets sick <gasps> and Dave Gaunt says, he calls out to the audience, does anybody happen to know the entire Depeche Mode catalog? <laughs> and the spotlight hits me. It's my time to shine. <laughs> I finally... <laughs> anyway, one day. Um, so um... <laughs> when you sneak backstage and put something in his drink beforehand. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, where were we? Um, well, you were saying that was the kind of music okay. that when you grew up, you were into. So this was your first introduction to classical music. So, I mean, that's a huge change for that's you it. when you're looking at the types of music you're into. Yeah, so I, exactly. I went into this first choir rehearsal and the choir director there at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I grew up in Nevada where Las Vegas is. And so that, that was just the state school that I attended. And he got me to sing in choir and... I remember very distinctly the first day, there were a hundred people in the room. I registered late, I think 10 days into the semester. So he started with back rubs and, you know, classic warmups. Yep. And I was just mortified for Aww. humanity. You know, I was like, I just couldn't believe that people would come together and voluntarily do this ridiculous thing. And I'm sure at that moment, I thought the moment this class is over, I'm dropping it. I'll, I'll leave the door. And then he said, let's turn to the Kyrie. And I didn't even know what a Kyrie was. I was raised without religion. And he drops his hands and the basses launch into the that opening fugue subject. And the altos. And the sopranos. And within 30 seconds, I was standing in the middle of this cosmic Swiss watch. This level of sophistication and beauty and frankly, humanity that I didn't even know existed until that moment. And I couldn't read the music. I was just standing with the score in my hand. And I remember standing there trembling and then giggling, which I still do when I hear music that really moves me. And then I had tears in my eyes. And looking back now, I realized it was the first moment that I felt part of something larger than myself, truly part of something larger than myself. And that piece 
utterly changed the course of my life. I left that rehearsal, the world's biggest choir geek, and I joined every choir I could. And three years into my degree, I wrote my first piece, which was a piece for choir, a gift to this man, David Weiler, who had changed my life. He started me conducting. I ended up going to the Juilliard School for my master's degree. Yeah, it's so it, when you asked, you know, what's a special piece to me in my past, that was an easy one. So that's incredible. That whole piece set the course for the rest of your life. Yeah. From that one moment. Truly. And on multiple, multiple levels. It's not just that I like the sound of it. It's really, as I described, there was, <laughs> to get on my soapbox for a moment, I feel like music like that, like the Requiem by Mozart. I don't feel this way only about classical music. I feel this way about all great music, that it can be transformative. It can actually change a person. And I know for me that it gave me an insight into not only that mathematical genius and a sense of creation, I don't mean in a religious sense, but creating a, a work of art, but it, it also gave me, I think, a path towards a greater humanity. I really can't hyperbolize enough what a transformative moment that was for me. But you'd always, it seems, had a, a really emotional response to music. I was, I was reading about when you were a child and you would play chords and, and you could really feel them when you were playing them. Yeah, that, that is true. That's, I have a 14-year-old son now and he has a music brain. And I, I see it now. I don't think I understood it when I was a, I just assumed my brain was like everyone else's. But there are people who seem to have brains that think in music and then people who have brains that think in engineering or brains that think in medicine or brains that think in law or a combination of the two. But I have a brain that thinks in music. And so from the earliest age, I can remember hearing a combination of chords and thrilling at them, just feeling them in my body, feeling actual emotion. I can even remember being probably 10 years old and we had a shower where the water coming out of the shower head had a hum, you know, like boo, like this. And then not even knowing what I was I was doing, I would sing another note with it, right? So da, I'd sing a second with it. And then I remember just sitting in the shower for God knows how long and just hearing, whoa, 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 you know, that, that beat. And then if you sing it this or this or this, and I always felt like there was this mystical world somewhere in between those notes, there was this netherworld where I'm not a religious person, but I always think that God lives in the overtones. If there were a God, that's where the true mystery is. I absolutely love that story. I mean, there are people that sing in the shower and you sing with the shower. That's <laughs> quite something, isn't it? It's <laughs> a beautiful way of describing it. <laughs> what, <laughs> quite something what did your <laughs> What did your parents make of it then? Are they, are they musical? Not at all. I'm completely a black sheep. My mom really embraced it. She saw that she's an artist, a visual artist. And so she, she saw at least, I think she saw that I had a passion. She was the one when I was in high school and in, in my pop band would drive me to every rehearsal with all my keyboards and drum machines or drive me to concerts that I would be playing. I think my dad initially, he just didn't know what to make of it. He had no idea what I was doing or what it meant or why. And I think he thought it was a pretty lousy job to have. You know, there's no stability in it. There's a lot of competition. But then um, eventually my dad became my biggest fan. And it's what I always tell young composers that, you know, when you start, everybody will tell you this is a bad idea, but eventually your dad will be your biggest fan. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, quite rightly as well. Talk me through that first composition then. How does that start off? Do you just sort of start to hear notes and you're thinking this is a piece forming? Do you sit down and think, right, I'm going to do this all at once? How long did that process take? Mm. My process has definitely changed over the years. I've, I think I've become a bit more refined about it in terms of structure and, and how to build a piece. But for me, it always begins with what I call a golden brick. I didn't have a name for it when I first started, but now I call it the golden brick. And the golden brick for me is, it's a chord or a, a couple of notes that have the entire DNA of the piece already embedded in it. I can actually play it here at the piano, although I don't know if this will pick up on the microphones, but so this very first piece, Go Lovely Rose, the entire choir starts on just a B. So they're all singing in unison this B. And then they just hold different notes and peel off. And so they sing, go lovely rose. Just those, those first five notes and they kind of create this shimmering Lydian cluster. And for me then, it's not just that that's a beautiful way to start a piece or an invitation 
It's also got all of this meaning to it. So because the piece is called Go Lovely Rose and I wanted to paint this idea of a rose, I thought we'll begin with a single seed. So that's what why the entire, why everyone starts on that single note. And then it's just going to blossom, just open up like this. So for me, this is the ultimate golden brick because it's working on several levels. It's working on a musical level and it's working on a metaphorical level and it's teaching the audience from the beginning. Okay, you got that? All right, here we go. Here comes the next step. Here comes the next step. So when I first wrote that piece, it was kind of by the seat of my pants. It's just very intuitive, but it kind of had the foundations of even what I, I use now as, as a technique to compose. Well, I mean, I absolutely love your music because it's just it just transports you to another world. And I think that's why I find it fascinating that you use the virtual choir because it's almost, that's another mechanism that enables that to happen in a sense. Thank you. I think for me, I mentioned before that I, I'm not religious. I was raised without religion. It's not that I'm an atheist. I'm just not a religious person. But what I adore is a communal experience. Growing up, I think if I had to pick my proxy religion, it was probably movies. I can't tell you how many thousands of hours I spent in movie theaters. And I, I really think that all of life's great questions are answered in the movies. And so I think the pieces that I write, starting with something just very simple and small like that, all the way to these massive virtual choirs with thousands of people from all over the world, all of them are designed to create a communal experience that people are coming together and feeling part of something larger themselves, uh, than themselves. And it's always my goal. So even in the concert hall, it's not just the audience for me. I want the performers to feel that as well, that there's just a sense that we're creating something um, something beautiful and a little grander than our normal everyday life. No, I shouldn't say grander. I should say transformative. That even for me, like a piece like Go Lovely Rose, which is only three and a half minutes long, my goal at least, I don't know if it achieves this, but my goal is that you start the piece one person and you end the piece slightly changed. Just you put the tiniest dent in the universe with that piece of music. Well, it's magic. It is absolutely magic, Thank I have you. to say. And, you know, obviously you've been recognized by everybody else as well. You won a Grammy for Light and Gold. It top the charts how do you feel about the fact that it's it's ways like that i think that make it more accessible to more people wanting to love classical music i think you know one of my fears is i suppose that it's such a beautiful genre of music but perhaps if people aren't exposed to it they have this idea that it's stuffy it's traditional it's not for them whereas your music i think it steps across that divide it offers people something more. It offers them a way in. It kind of opens the door, if you like. Thank you. That's a huge compliment. Sometimes the idea of accessibility in classical music is seen as a as not a good thing. That it's somehow in the 20th century, I think we, we got in classical music this idea that if a piece is popular or well-loved, that it's pandering to an audience. And that's not how I feel at all. I, I feel that the best music is music that invites you in that really it takes you by the hand and says, come on, we're gonna go on this journey. Let's do this together. Now, it doesn't have to be soft and sweet. You know, you think of like uh, the Rite of Spring, Stravinsky. It begins with an invitation, but in no way is this a, this, there's a lot of danger in this invitation. You know, you hear those first notes and you're not sure, do I wanna go with this person or, oh, okay, it's, it's a kind of seduction. But at the same time, it really is that, it's including the audience. It wants to take the audience on a journey. Sometimes I find with contemporary classical music, there can be just a sense of, well, good luck. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, I don't really, it seems to be, I don't care if you understand this or not. It's not for you. Okay, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. It's just not the kind of music that I like or that I want to write. And so when you say the word accessible, I really like that. Because like you, I believe deeply in the virtues of classical music. I don't think it's the best music, but my God, is it beautiful music. There's also terrible classical music. No one ever says this out loud, right? <laughs> Nobody ever says that part out loud. It's like classical music is great, which is always a funny thing. Sorry, I'm going to rant for a minute. It's a funny thing to say too, because uh, if somebody were to say, do you like rock music, right? You think, well, what are we talking about, right? right? Like, yeah. Are, are we talking about 1940s blues? Are we talking about... Which kind? Yeah, yeah. Elvis, Beatles, the, the Pink Floyd, The Who. Are we talking about Nirvana? Are we talking about Billie Eilish? Like, what is rock music? It's And the same thing with classical music. It's such a huge, broad definition. So the thing is, though, I think there are great, life-changing works and composers that have been writing for hundreds of years. And I think that oftentimes the way to bring an audience to that isn't intellectually at first. I think it's emotionally. 
that if, if you can sit an audience down and just get them to experience some of this music, the transformation will be so complete, then they can enter it on an intellectual level. Sorry, I really rambled there for a bit. No, no, no. I no, I I see where you're going with that. And I think it's it's a great point. I guess I also wanted to examine from the point of view of inclusivity as well in classical music. Obviously, the times we're going through at the moment, we've seen the Black Lives Matter protest. There's a lot of talk about equality. We're looking at injustice. We're making sure as a society that we're including everybody, that we're treating everybody fairly, that everybody has opportunities. How do you think we do that in the world of classical music? I don't know yet. I, I don't know. But there's no question there's an issue to be addressed and that it's systemic. There's just no question. You can look at the top, I don't know, 100 composers probably, at least in terms of popularity and performances, and every single one of them is probably a white man. And so it's not just inclusivity based on race, but also gender. And of course, we can say, well, that's historically how it's been. Yes, that is historically how it's been. How do we want it to be? And I think the word that you said is opportunity. That to me is, is the whole thing. I think if we're just able to give all the people the same opportunities, then I think we'll see a very, very even playing field. I think suddenly we'll, we'll probably have orchestras that look like society, right? There'll be half men and half women, and all the races will be balanced and equally represented if they're given the opportunity. It's how to give that opportunity that's the real challenge. For me, you know, here in America, I guess I'd be called a raging socialist. <laughs> <laughs> For me, the, the way to do that is that we've got to throw money at it, and we've got to throw government money at it, and it's important. It's essential. It's foundational. It's beyond necessary. Also, we need uh, wealthy philanthropists, people with billions and millions of dollars, or else people with millions of dollars, mm. or even people with hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to be giving towards these very important causes and to keep this stuff not only alive, but thriving. A society's values are reflected in the depth and breadth of its arts programs. And were I president of the United States, God knows it would be one of my number one issues. What's musical education like in the US? Is, is it given enough priority? It's interesting. It's, I mentioned before that, that there's 50 different states, right? And so it's like 50 different countries. So each state has its own level of, of music education. And there are some states like Texas where it's thriving. There's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of music students um, that are, are performing regularly and really growing each year. And then there are places like California here where I am that used to have a thriving musical education system and that is slowly being dismantled. Um, in general, I would say there's a downward trend. And I fear that this is happening a lot in a lot of places. I'm sure you just saw this recent report about the UK where mm. over the past 10 years, something like the, the number of students taking their A-level exams for music has halved in 10 years, which is mind-blowing. To me, the greatest fear in all of it is that it's killing the garden from the roots up because what will happen is you'll graduate people from school who have never ever experienced ensemble music making and then those people become administrators and politicians and then they can't possibly understand the value of these things so they'll advocate against them mm. in in order to save money or to allocate resources elsewhere and then you're in big trouble when you start having generations of people who are in charge but haven't had the experience. So actually, potentially that gets worse then? I believe it will get worse. And I, I believe it's pretty predictably worse that you can see it dying on the vine as resources are allocated elsewhere generationally. So what I always think is the best way to combat that is simply get music in the hands of young people. And that's the other thing too, is oftentimes it's just exposure. That's it. Just, just having it in their lives is enough. Just being around it and having it be a normal part of one's day. If it were up to me getting on my soapbox again, I would start every day at school with singing. That all the students would come together and they'd sing for 20 minutes. They'd all hate it. Or maybe some of them would love it. You know, it's too early in the morning. But we now have really hard scientific evidence that this has massive benefits. And not only in terms of music. We know that ensemble music making this, the scientific studies show this, increases scores in math and science and history and literature, independent of music. It increases a sense of empathy and compassion. I think it just makes better citizens. And so even just from a scientific 
cost-benefit analysis, I would say we should just have music as part of a fundamental part of the education. Just it makes no sense to me why it does why it's not there. I think that's a great idea. I think you know there you go. You should run for president, and that could be your <laughs> your opening pitch. Can you imagine? No. <laughs> I'll tell you this. Hey, and wait, can I just say this while we're while we've been talking about presidents and pres- the reason I wouldn't run for president? Not that you're. I know you're not being serious, but the reason I wouldn't run for president is because I'm not qualified. Right. So rule number one, don't run for president if you have but, no idea what you're doing. I mean, that doesn't necessarily rule you out. <laughs> Isn't that terrifying? This is the worst, <laughs> the scariest part about the U.S. Constitution is the only two qualifications. You have to be 35 years old and you have to be a natural born citizen. That's it. And in a dream world, that works beautifully because anyone could aspire to be a president. But in a nightmare world, it also works. <laughs> anyone can be president. <laughs> yeah, we should wait and see what happens with that one, won't we? Yes, let's wait. <laughs> um, let me ask you about your connection with the UK, because I know you spent five years as composer in residence at Cambridge University. Yeah, right. How how was your time here? Oh, I miss it. It was joyous. Uh, first, spending all that time at Cambridge. Cambridge is truly a magical place. I have just countless warm memories. Also, I'm not an intellectual, but in my intellectual life, it's probably the most absorbed and ignited I've ever felt. And just being around these extraordinary minds, students and professors. Also, of course, anybody who's been to Cambridge, it's just idyllic. It's it's like walking through a movie set. It's so beautiful there. I lived in London and was would take the train to Cambridge um, a couple times a week. And so London, too, is just really one of my favorite cities in the world. I miss it desperately. Um it's not out of the cards that I might move back one day. That, that's a possibility. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is this some breaking news for us? <laughs> well, yeah. So if anybody, if anybody's renting a flat, let me know. No, but um, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, it's, uh, I miss so much about it. Really so much about it. And my management team is there. I have a professional choir, the Eric Whitaker Singers. They're all Brits. They're all in London. Yeah, I miss it a lot. I know you've performed at the Royal Albert Hall, oh, which sh- is, you know, one of my favorite venues it's i absolutely love it there it's got such a special feel about it yeah it? it's it's incredible and have you performed there also uh, well i'd love to say i've performed there i mean i've performed as in i've presented on stage there if that counts oh, but um, are, are, sadly my mute my musical abilities don't stretch as far as them actually allowing me on stage at the royal albert hall i think that's the quickest way to clear the audience right off <laughs> no. well fair enough um i i will say though that that you, you mentioned Albert Hall. It's it, there's no place like it in the world. Nothing, it's nothing even close. Um, and I've given now, I guess I've done two proms concerts, one with singers, then one with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Some of the highlights of my life. It's impossible to describe. It's also, um, you know, during the proms, of course, the, the entire floor is standing room, hence the proms part of it. But that always wanted to be in Depeche Mode. You know, I walk out onto that stage and there's, <laughs> 1500 people standing oh, no. right up against the stage. Don't tell me. Right? It's, You're going to say it's really tempting. It is tempting. I actually <laughs> to leap told, out and do a stage dive. I told the audience this during my first proms concert. I said, I am so tempted to stage dive right now. I just know no one would catch me. That's the only reason I didn't do it. But but it's it's as close as I think I will ever come to an actual rock concert. Um, it's, it's such a, an exciting feeling. But I mean, talking about amazing venues, I know you've also performed at Buckingham Palace as well. Yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty special in itself too isn't it performing for the queen that was pretty great um pretty extraordinary and then ironically or maybe not ironically ironically i think for the queen a couple of years later we did the virtual choir performance where we performed live with the virtual choir there at buckingham and then a couple of years later to open the commonwealth games we also did a different virtual choir this time for unicef with all children and the queen was also in attendance and i always somewhere in the back of my mind i think the queen is just rolling her eyes and thinking really Another one of these virtual choirs. <laughs> I, I would love to meet her one day and ask her. I doubt that's going to happen. but One day. You never know. One day. Well, she's sort of, you know, she's tucking herself away at the moment because of everything that's going on. But maybe when life's a bit back to normal, then you'll get the opportunity. Yes. Let me ask you now about your blast choice. The piece of music that is a bit of a guilty pleasure or one that you just blast out and you love to play at full volume? Uh, yeah, okay, so this is I Wish by Stevie Wonder. And I wouldn't call it a guilty pleasure at all because I think Stevie Wonder <laughs> is one of the great musical geniuses of all time. The reason these days that it's on my mind is that I mentioned before my 14-year-old son, he's a jazz bass player. This is how his musical direction has taken him. And this is proud papa bragging a little bit, but 
he's got some game the kid can play and um so even early on i think he's probably nine or ten he could play that lick that starts the beginning of uh, i wish and then now he can really sing with it so he's playing and singing which already baffles me i can't imagine playing that bass and singing at the same time and he's teaching my wife who's a soprano how to play it on the bass and she can now play it so the two of them jam together Love that. and then i just sit on the piano and, and comp and so now it's it's become in a way a family song and um it's pretty great. I mean, if, if you're going to have a family song, I Wish by Stevie Wonder, it's, it's way up there. <laughs> I just love the idea of you all there with your music sessions, you know, that blaring out. It, it's absolutely magical, I'm sure. Yeah, it's the best. It's the best. And, and, you know, we were talking about music as medicine. For me, Stevie Wonder in general, uh, but especially I Wish, it's just one of those songs that you can't help but be up. The moment that kicks in, it just it your body takes over you know just it's and and i also have this half-baked theory that stevie wonder's music and a lot of funk in general is speaking to different parts of your body you know like if if you just let it go it's like oh i guess my left arm is doing this and oh look at my (laughs) right arm and let the mind go and the body will follow it's uh it's it's really medicine it's every time we we start in on i wish just yep there we go life is good so there's a bit of dancing going on as well is there that's what i'm hearing i wouldn't call it dancing if you saw it uh, you (laughs) (laughs) there's let's call it rhythmic moving (laughs) uncontrolled rhythmic moving (laughs) (laughs) so when would you would you play this one to kind of you know if you're in a good mood to to echo that would you play it if you were thinking do you know what i need a bit of a pep or a bit of a boost Mm. when when does this one get played or is it just the whole time yes and yes if i wake up in the morning and just ugh, you know day day nine thousand of covid and if you click on i wish then boom it's just seriously 10 seconds in with that baseline that okay i'm good and then you know if you're in the car and you get a good phone call or you're starting a road trip and you hit that it's the ultimate party song yeah it's just good it's just good feel good music um and again to get on my soapbox i think it has to do with uh there, there was that era of music when Stevie was really doing his thing where something special was happening. They would get into a studio and they they had just figured out how to capture all of this and how to put all that energy in a bottle. It's amazing to me now that how old is that song? It's got to be 40 years at least, 45 years, that it just leaps through the speakers, you know, and you, you feel like you're in the room with Stevie and the band and... and uh, mm. It's good. Yeah, it still feels as fresh as ever, doesn't it? When you listen to music, are you able to switch off and absorb the music or are you continually thinking about it, analyzing it, storing bits away in your head, thinking, oh, I like the sound of that. I, you know, I'll, I'll try that technique or something. Yeah, the latter. <laughs> I, I wish I could. I, I honestly think it was my master's degree at, at the Juilliard School that wrecked my brain. And I only say that half jokingly. Even during my undergraduate degree, I started to learn to read music. Well, perfect example. So if, if now if I do, right, if I just do this. So before I knew how to read music and before I understood what that was harmonically, I think I would have described that as ah, ah, right? Like there's only an emotional language. And the moment I put it into words, it becomes something else. Now I know that's that's one five one and man did i learn that at juilliard we got that trained into us within an inch of our life and i can't turn that off now i can't turn off harmonic or formal analysis so if i'm listening to any kind of music in any genre there's part of my brain that's going one two flat seven three oh we've changed keys you know like like actually analyzing it almost like a scientist um I, i wonder if other musicians have this thing and most of my, I find my daily process is trying to quiet that part of my brain and get back to the spongy, emotional part of my brain that speaks in that that darker kind of liquid chocolate uh, sort of understanding of the music. So can you not switch off? Would you not put music on to relax? Is that a different process for you? You do something else? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So my wife sometimes will put on these Spotify piano playlists in the background. And she calls them wallpaper and they just help her chill out. And which amazes me that she, because to me, if I hear music in any context, it's somebody whispering in my ear, right? And they're saying something very clearly to me. And so if it's, forgive me, Spotify, if it's bad, 
piano music or let's say not very thoughtful <laughs> piano music, then it sounds like somebody whispering bad poetry in my ear. Do you know what I mean? It's like just greeting cards. And it's not that I can just turn off and say, oh, what a lovely atmosphere it's creating. I get a little enraged. It's like, I know, I know that moon doesn't rhyme with June. Stop it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but, but that means then if there's music that's designed to relax, like for instance, when I was at Cambridge, the music director of, at Sydney Sussex College, David Skinner, who's a good friend, used to describe the music of Thomas Tallis and William Byrd as music that induces a sense of twilight. I love that. And I find that to be so true. There's this horizon between the conscious and the subconscious mind. And I find that the best Renaissance acapella choral music takes you to that place, this beautiful island of purgatory where you're not in either dimension. And for instance, if I put on Thomas Tallis or William Byrd or Palestrina, I'm there. I'm in that. So it's it's not about just turning it on and, and turning the brain off, but actually inducing this this state of twilight. That's a gift. And how much is the audience reaction in your mind when you're writing a piece? Because I read somewhere that you can change the audience's breathing mm. from the music yeah, yeah, that you right. write. How does that work? Well, as it turns out, audiences, I don't want to say that you're manipulating them, but they're malleable. You know, an audience is a living organism. And I always think about it that way. I never think that it's just these blank faces or people to be spoken to. It's a group of people that can be led, that can be changed. And so the thing that you're referring to is a piece that I wrote called Lux Arumque, which in English simply means light and gold. It's Latin. And the idea is, here, I'll, I'll play this again. I don't know if this will come through, but the beginning of the piece is very simple. Two, three, rest. And then we repeat that. And you can't hear this on the piano, but with voices, there's a crescendo for those first four beats and then a day crescendo for the three beats and then you rest. And what I was trying to do, my golden brick idea, was not just this invitation musically, but that I would be teaching the audience to breathe from the very first notes so that they would, with that crescendo, they would and rest. And the thing is I've, I've discovered over and over that it's really true that if we sing it at the right tempo, and it's, it's in tune and it's, there's, you hear that crescendo and that decrescendo, the audience can't help but fall into this breathing pattern. They breathe together that way. And then once you've established that, then you can play with it. Further into the piece, you can teach them how to breathe ecstatically or breathe with eyes open or breathe in a very calm and gentle, twilight-inducing kind of way. And so over a four-minute piece, if performed correctly, it can have a physiological effect. And best of all, we have science to back this up now too. Dr. Daisy Fancourt, uh, I think she was at Imperial College at the time. She wired us all up, the Eric Whitaker singers, and and took saliva samples from the audience. And we did rehearsals and concerts like this. Wow. And we're able to show there's these actual physiological benefits and changes happening in the body during these, this kind of music. That's absolutely fascinating. So you could then prove that music is good for you because you've got the results there to <laughs> yeah. show it. Well, that, that, that's what she joked, you know, she said, oh, yeah. So after 800 years, we finally proved what everybody knows. Music is good for yeah. you. But but what's interesting is then I know Daisy is, she's a huge advocate of this, a Dr. Fancourt, I should say. She is now taking this data to administrators at hospitals and saying, look, let's set aside all of the music is good for you and isn't it lovely to make music. Let's just look at the hard scientific data that actually if you employ music this way pre-surgery, and post-surgery, that you're actually going to have better healing rates and quicker healing times. It's good for you financially. And so now hospitals are starting to include this idea because it starts to make dollars and cents sense. I'm fine with that too. It's, it's also my argument, like I said, for music education. It's good on a hundred different levels, not just- It is. The, so the you could like. be it's on a prescription. They could be prescribing that patients listen to your music for their well-being. I think this all the time, actually. And I imagine that there is probably some real truth in that if you could find it, if you could break it down. I've even got some ideas about how one could really do that. You know, now with the, with the Apple Watches, you know, you're getting some nice haptic feedback. Even now you get temperature, you get, you know, pulse rates. Why not have a kind of dialogue between the machine and the body so that as the machine is producing music, 
it's measuring the body's response to it and then alters the music that's being heard to bring the body from a state of, say, excitement to, to stasis. I'm sure it's possible. I love the fact that I could have a watch on my wrist that if it senses I'm feeling a bit stressed, it might just start playing some of your music to calm me down. <laughs> I think I think that's a great way forward. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love it. The scientist in me would like to say, well, uh, let's listen. the composer in me would be, is thrilled. Woo, somebody's listening to my music. The scientist in me is like, well, we've got a lot more research to do on my music specifically. <laughs> and also, then I would love to actually compose something with scientific rigor. Right and say, okay, what actually works in the body, and now let's let's compose a piece around that and see if we can have a, a dramatic physiological effect. So, listen, looking ahead, what's next for you? What's still to cross off your list apart from obviously being the next member of Depeche Mode? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've got a few mountaintop things. I'd love to collaborate with Radiohead. I'd love to collaborate with Bjork. I'd love to collaborate with Billie Eilish. All these interesting pop and rock people. I'd like to write a film score. But the truth is, when I, when I really think, even five years out, I think it's very possible that I will have dropped it all and gone off to culinary school in, in Northern <laughs> Italy, or, or that I, I'll be studying tango, or that I'll, I'll finally put the nose to the grindstone and learn to be an architect. Or, and this, this is the ultimate dream, but I'm gonna throw this out there just in case somebody's listening and can make this happen. <laughs> I desperately want to go to space. I desperately oh. want to go. Yeah, I truly, truly want to go to space. I'm an, a huge space nerd. I have been since I was nine or 10 years old. And so if somebody said to me now, uh, you're going to have to give up music, but you're entering the space program, uh, th th all you'd see is an, an Eric-shaped hole in the in the wall, <laughs> like Wiley e. Coyote uh, on my way to NASA. I, I would leave, drop it all in a second to, to pursue that. I love that. But you could conduct a virtual choir from space. Oh my God, right? Th this yeah. is it? We found it. Okay. We've done it. <laughs> now we need some state-sponsored space program to buy in yeah. on this. this is we just easy, need someone easy. to be listening who can make this happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. I'm absolutely in. Well, I was going to say watch this space, but then that's a really bad pun, isn't it? So um, let's not <laughs> nice. end on that one. <laughs> it's perfect Listen, place. Eric Whitaker, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Yeah, for me too, Charlotte. Thank you so much for having me and be well. Yeah, be healthy. Thank you. And you. Thanks so much. Bye bye. It was brilliant to speak with Eric and who knows, we could be listening to his music being beamed from space one day. If you've not heard Eric's music, then do have a listen. And inspired by his choral music, my recommendation this week is Samuel Barber's Agnes Day. choral piece you can really lose yourself in it and if you want to hear the music mentioned today it is all available in the companion playlist have a look at the link in the show notes if you like what you've heard in this episode please do share it with a friend and also leave a review it would be great if you could as it helps the show to be discovered by new listeners so a big thank you in advance this podcast is produced by Renee Richardson with B. Duncan and exec produced by Chloe Murphy at Sony Classical. I'll be back next week with another guest to chat about their last past and blast. So I'll see you then. Bye for now. <laughs>